1945, baseball sat at a crossroads. No, not the Robert Johnson sell your soul to the devil for a blues guitar kind of crossroads, but the kind of crossroads where the old guard was dead. The old way of doing things was becoming obsolete and a brighter future, a more colorful future, a future with a quality of baseball where the best in the world were finally going head to head. Well, that was finally within reach. World War II had ended. Our troops came home, both black and white, the same, together. And baseball's first commissioner, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, was dead. Landis spent 24 years upholding the quote-unquote gentleman's agreement, the unwritten law in Major League Baseball that kept teams from signing black ballplayers. If you asked him, Landis would say, there's nothing that says an owner can't sign a player of any color. Yet for over six decades and the entirety of Landis's tenure, black ball players were turned away, but pressure was building through the public and through the press. As you've heard in our last episode of Black Diamonds, the call was loud. It was time to integrate baseball. When Landis died in 1944, Major League Baseball's owners looked for a replacement who had the ability to influence Washington, D.C. as commissioner. In part due to the war and the fact that so many owners lost players to the draft. The first vote in April of 1945 featured several prominent government candidates. Undersecretary of War Robert Patterson, former Postmaster General James Farley, Democratic National Committee Chairman Robert Hannigan, among others. None were elected commissioner. And that's when Yankees co-owner Larry McPhail took to the soapbox and advocated for his own candidate, Kentucky Senator Albert Benjamin Happy Chandler, the man who became baseball's second commissioner, the man in charge when the color barrier finally came down. Former Major League Baseball Commissioner Happy Chandler, speaking to interviewer William Marshall in 1980, courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History at the University of Kentucky. They were moving in the direction of trying to see that arrangements were made to permit them to play. They, were, they had numerous uh, players who were outstanding. Josh Gibson, as I recall, and Satchel Page, and Leonard, and Thomas, and some of the others. I knew about them. They were fine. I saw some of them play. But the must be remembered that Commissioner Landis, my predecessor for 24 years, said no to them every time they asked. And that was because the owner didn't want to play. Now, on the outside, Chandler was a Southern man through and through. He spoke with a slow Southern drawl and sang my old Kentucky home freely. He even spent a summer in his youth pitching for the semi-pro Lexington Reds in Kentucky. And legend has it, threw a no-hitter in a semi-pro ball game in 1920. But Chandler gave up baseball to study law and returned in 1945 as the sports commissioner. And baseball owners, including Larry McPhail, quickly found out 
that despite his law background and Southern leanings, Happy Chandler was not Kennesaw Mountain Landis. Or as my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill would say, Happy Chandler was indeed a white Southerner. But it's not where you're from, it's who you are. And as Happy Chandler would eventually say of Branch Rickey's effort to sign Jackie Robinson, the man is only trying to sign a second baseman. Let him play. They knew I was a Southerner, and they knew I was a Confederate, had Confederate leanings, and that was all true. And they thought I'd be the last fellow that would uh, agree to let a black boy play. Talking about all these owners, what was their expectations of you as a commissioner? They had just gotten away from Landis. And, and old man Landis didn't know anything about Baylor. He didn't know baseball from Baylor Hay. They took him because he found the Standard Oil, $14 million, which he never collected. He had a reputation of being stern, and at that time they had to make a showing uh, in order to show that they were honest because the American people were getting ready to quit them. They thought they were crooked, and they were crooked at that moment. So old man Landis uh, went to the game and looked stern. I knew old man Landis. I knew him well. He was a nice old man, but nothing special. Uh, he was a federal judge. I was a baseball player. He never played game baseball in his life. I played in college. I played in three leagues. Uh, judge Landis was uh, an unusual fellow. Uh, he was wrong about the black thing, but they were all wrong about it. And he was just doing what they wanted him to do about that because if a fellow was black and asked to come in, he said no. He just said no to him. And of course, I broke that thing in 47, and uh, I still think that that hadn't been appreciated, not even by them. The blacks talk about somebody doing for them. That was a monumental thing. In 2015, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum made a bold decision to go out and try to secure a letter that was up for auction, written by New York Yankees managing partner Larry McPhail to New York City Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. LaGuardia had appointed MacPhail and others to a commission to examine Major League Baseball's hiring practices. Now, when you have a competitive spirit, and competitive spirit and auction don't go together when you don't have a competitive pocketbook, and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum really doesn't have a competitive pocketbook, but once this letter came up for auction, we knew we needed to have this. This was going to be such a central piece that really helped our visitors understand the immense obstacles that black baseball players faced in this quest for integration. This basically Berlin wall that was put up by major league owners to block black players from playing in the major leagues. And this letter really was going to quantify that for so many who would ultimately make their way to visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. This document is so vitally important because in this document, Larry McPhail builds a case. Quite frankly, it was a compelling case for why black baseball players should not be playing in organized baseball, as it was called. Note, this statement of opinion on the Negro in baseball was submitted by L.S. McPhail, 
president of the American League Baseball Club of New York, to the committee recently appointed by Mayor LaGuardia to survey and study this problem. Here, reading that letter, is former New York Yankee, New York Met, and Major League All-Star, Curtis Granderson. Baseball has established itself as the great national sport. The professional game has been built up over a period of many years with increasing prestige and prosperity on the basis of separate white and Negro leagues. The white leagues from the structure known as organized baseball a hundred million dollar business operating in approximately 40 leagues and blanketing this country in Canada from coast to coast. The four Negro leagues have had a hard struggle for survival. They are not a part of organized baseball. Their operations have been handicapped by the lack of adequate capital and organization and the availability of suitable playing fields. Only in the past few years have the Negro Leagues been able to make progress towards profits and stability. The growth and development of Negro baseball indicates that the relationship of the Negro Leagues and their players to organized baseball should be re-examined. The problem of providing broader opportunity for the Negro boy who aspires to a career in professional baseball merits serious survey and study. Baseball's appeal is not limited to any racial group. The Negro is a great baseball fan and has always been a loyal supporter of the game. The history of American sport has been enriched by the performance of great Negro athletes who have attained the mythical All-America team in football, who have won world championships in boxing, and who have helped carry America to track and field victories in the Olympic Games. 54 professional Negro baseball players served with the armed forces in this war. One player was killed and several wounded in combat. The majority of American people are primarily concerned with the excellence of performance in sport rather than the color, race, or creed of the performer. Organized baseball recognizes this and will not, in my opinion, jeopardize its leadership in professional sport by failing to give due appreciation to the fact that the Negro fan and the Negro player are rightly part and parcel of the game. Every time MacPhail would say something, and he would say something that offered some real genuine level of validity. For instance, he would say, well, you know, if we sign black ball players, we will put the Negro Leagues out of business. He was absolutely right. That was going to be the byproduct of what integration would ultimately yield. And of course, we'll go into greater detail and an in-depth look at the cost of integration to the African-American community as well as the Negro Leagues. But then on the other side of the equation, he would say something that was just simply absurd. Well, you know they lack the faculties to play in our league. Now, I don't know when you had to become a Rhodes Scholar to play Major League Baseball, but that seemingly was the prevailing mindset that kept this whole, I don't know, clouded thinking that Black folks weren't capable of playing at the Major League level. It is unfortunate that groups of political and social-minded drumbeaters are conducting pressure campaigns in an attempt to force Major League clubs to sign Negro players now employed by Negro League clubs. 
members of those clubs are not particularly interested in baseball. They are not campaigning to provide better opportunity for thousands of Negro boys who want to play professional baseball. They are not even primarily interested in improving the lot of Negro players are already employed. They know little about professional baseball and nothing about the business end of its operation. They have singled out organized baseball for attack because it offers a good publicity medium for propaganda. When they charge that organized baseball is flying a Jim Crow flag at its masthead and that racial discrimination is the basic reason for failure of major league clubs to employ Negro players, they are talking through their individual and collective hats. Unfair accusations, picketing and unintelligent propaganda will not force major league clubs to employ Negro players and will not solve problems which depend for solution upon constructive cooperation of the Negroes and whites now engaged in baseball business. The solution of this problem in professional baseball must be compatible with long established business and property rights because professional baseball is a private business which has to depend upon profits for its existence, just like any other business. This is not true of amateur or intercollegiate baseball in tax-supported or publicly financed institutions north of the Mason-Dixon line, where the problem is non-existent. The principal reasons why Negro players have not signed by major league clubs are as follows. Number one, organized baseball derives substantial revenues from operations of the Negro leagues and wants these leagues to continue and to prosper. Negro League clubs rent their parks in most cities from clubs and organized baseball. The Yankee organization alone nets nearly $100,000 per year from rentals and concessions in connection with Negro League games at Yankee Stadium in New York and at Kansas City, Newark, and Norfolk. McPhail understood that if we integrate our sport, We are going to put the Negro Leagues out of business. But by putting the Negro Leagues out of business, we are going to take a source, a major source of revenue away from many major league teams. He would go on to reference the Washington Senators, Clark Griffith's Washington Senators, where the Homestead Grays were playing there in D.C. And the Homestead Grays were filling up Griffith Stadium outdrawing the meager Washington Senators who were a perennial basement dweller in Major League Baseball. Yeah, they were filling up the ballpark with black folks coming out to watch Buck Leonard and Josh Gibson do miraculous things that really people had not seen there, particularly as they were comparing them to the Washington Senators because there was no comparison. The Homestead Grays, and I've said this before, and I say it with no disrespect to my friends in D.C. with the Washington Nationals, the Homestead Grays, y'all, are still the greatest baseball franchise the city of Washington, D.C. has ever seen. And they were filling up Clark Griffith's ballpark. And he understood, too, the economic impact that was being created by black baseball that was propelling Major League Baseball. That was part of the reason. That was the biggest part of the reason of this resistance to integration of our game. And as I remind people here all the time, 
Anytime they say it ain't about the money, it's always about the money. But sometimes when we start to look at things in black and white, we realize that it's green. And that is really the color that drove this decision to keep these Negro League players out of, again, organized baseball, the major league. And that color, the color barrier really was green instead of black and white. Number two, the outstanding Negro players are under contract or reservation to clubs in the Negro Leagues. Even if organized baseball wanted to sign these players, it could not do so without violating the contractual relationship existing between the Negro Leagues and their players. Signing a few Negro players for the major leagues would be a gesture which would contribute little or nothing towards the solution of the basic problem. Any such program would be disadvantageous to the Negro players and the Negro fans and would restrict instead of broaden opportunity for the Negro boy in professional baseball. In my opinion, for the following reasons. Number one, there are few, if any, Negro players who could qualify for play in the major leagues at this time. A major league player must have something besides natural ability. He must possess the technique, the coordination, the competitive aptitude, and the discipline usually acquired only after years of training in the smaller leagues. The minor league experience, for instance, averages seven years. The major leagues are primarily interested in the teenage boy with great potentialities who will have years of service left after completing his minor league apprenticeship. Almost all observers competent to appraise the qualifications of Negro League players agree with Mr. Sam Lacey, sports editor of the Afro-American newspaper, who says, quote, I am reluctant to say that we haven't a single man in the ranks of colored baseball who could step into the major league uniform and disport himself after the fashion of a big leaguer. There are those among our league players who might possibly excel in the matter of hitting or fielding or base running. But for the most part, the fellows who could hold their own in more than one of these phases of the game are few and far between, perhaps nil. One of the things that the late great Buck O'Neill and I talked about oftentimes was that entire misperception of education and baseball. You see, the Negro Leagues had nearly 40% of his athletes who had some level of college education. Less than 5% of those who played in the major leagues at that same time had any college education for the simple reason that the major leagues didn't want you to go to college. They got you right out of high school, put you into their farm system, and then you ultimately work your way into their major league system. The Negro Leagues did not have that kind of sophisticated farm system. So what did they do? They trained on the campuses of historically black colleges and universities. And then they would compete against the black college baseball teams. And then they recruited a great deal of their workforce from those HBCUs, which is why they had a disproportionate number of college-educated athletes in comparison to the major leagues, yet the Negro Leagues were still oftentimes seen as this league that was filled with tramps, vagabonds, illiterate, when they were actually brighter 
than their major league counterparts. I remind folks that Jackie Robinson walked into a dugout where he was likely the most intellectual being in that dugout. And, and this was something that Buck took great pride in, and it's something that we at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum also take great pride in because we are constantly working to break down those misnomers, those stereotypes that so oftentimes perpetuate the mindset that we established on something. So hopefully we can shine light on the truth here. And so intellect had nothing to do with keeping these athletes out of the major leagues. Number two, about 400 Negro professionals are under contract to the 24 clubs in four Negro leagues. Negro baseball is making progress and is now a $2 million business. One club, the Kansas City Monarchs, drew 315,000 people to its home and road games in 1944. Over 50,000 people paid 72,000 to witness the East-West game at the White Sox Stadium in Chicago. A Negro League game established the all-time attendance record at Griffith Stadium in Washington. Over 15,000 people paid to watch the Negro teams in the Yankee Stadium last Sunday. Negro clubs pay salaries ranging up to $16,000 per year. In 1942, while the Kansas City Monarchs were winning the 1942 Negro League World Series, and Buck O'Neill called that 42 team his favorite team of all time, and that 42 team, guys, had four future Hall of Famers, now with Buck O'Neill being the most recent inductee into the National Baseball Hall of Fame, along with Willard Brown, Satchel Paige, and Hilton Smith. You can make an argument that Ted Strong could also be an inductee. And we talked about Ted Strong, who I likened to be Dave Winfield before we ever knew who Dave Winfield was. So the Monarchs were sweeping the Homestead Grays in 1942 to win the Negro League World Series. That same year, Jackie Roosevelt Robinson had been enlisted into the U.S. Army, and he was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas, right up the road from the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And again, as I've made mention before, two of America's most iconic sports figures were both stationed at little bitty Fort Riley, Kansas uh, at the same time, Jackie Robinson and Joe Lewis. Yes, Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion of the world. And at that time, y'all, Joe Lewis was really the star because to hold the title of heavyweight boxing champion or the world's fastest man were the two most prestigious sports titles that you could hold in this country. And Jackie Robinson was there at Fort Riley and Jackie Robinson, like a lot of others, had more than enough qualification to be an officer. But as we related, Fort Riley was not admitting blacks into his officer school program. And so Joe Lewis and others protested. And particularly Lewis, who had done exhibition prize fights to raise money for the military for quite some time. And Joe called in some favors. And ultimately, Jackie Robinson is admitted into officer school there at Fort Riley. This sets the stage for Jackie Robinson to now be transferred over to Fort Hood in Texas. And of course, it was at Fort Hood that Jackie would be court-martialed for his refusal to give up his seat on the bus to a white officer. Jackie wins his case 
and, of course, received an honorable discharge in 1944. In 1945, Jackie makes his way to the Kansas City Monarchs, due in large part to the great Hilton Smith, who had previously recommended Robinson for a tryout to join the Kansas City Monarchs. Well, Robinson writes J.L. Wilkinson, the owner of the Kansas City Monarchs, and asks him again for a tryout. Well, Wilkinson sets up this tryout this time because so many of Wilkie's star players were serving in World War II. And they try Jackie out in Houston, Texas. And of course, he makes the team. And he comes and joins the Kansas City Monarchs. Matter of fact, he plays his first game with the Kansas City Monarchs here in Kansas City on May 6, 1945, against the Chicago American Giants. Jackie would go on to have a really solid rookie season in the Negro Leagues. And to be perfectly frank, Jackie hated his time in the Negro Leagues. Number three, the Negro Leagues cannot exist without good players. If they cannot field good teams, they cannot continue to attract the Negro fans. Continued prosperity depends upon improving standards of play. Comparatively, few good young Negro players are being developed. If the major leagues of organized baseball raid these leagues and take their outstanding players, if the minors raid these leagues and take their good young players, the Negro leagues will fold up. The investment of their club owners will be wiped out and a lot of professional Negro players will lose their jobs. The Negroes who own and operate these clubs naturally do not favor any such program. Jackie hated his time in the Negro Leagues. And it wasn't because he didn't have respect for those Negro League players. He absolutely did. That is part of the reason that he would ultimately put together these all-star junkets that was chalk-filled with some great Negro League stars. So he understood that the players in the Negro Leagues could play. He didn't like some of the environment that was surrounding the Negro Leagues. He didn't like some of the off-the-field things that occurred in the Negro Leagues, but guess what? Those same kind of off-the-field things were occurring in Major League Baseball when we talk about gambling and carousing and these kinds of things. Jackie was a very religious young man, and so being around this didn't sit very well with him, and of course, he hated Jim Crowsaw, and he always felt like the ball players were taking more than they needed to take in that environment. In conclusion, I have no hesitancy in saying that the Yankees have no intention of signing Negro players under contract or reservation to Negro clubs. Under present conditions, I do not believe anything can be accomplished by signing Negro players for small minor league clubs to give trials to players whom you do not intend to employ is sheer hypocrisy. On the other hand, I believe the Negro is entitled to a better deal in baseball, and I will favor any practical program to produce this result. If and when the Negro Leagues put their house in order, establish themselves on a sound and ethical operations basis, and conform to the standards of organized baseball, I favor admitting them to organized baseball and the rights, privileges, and obligations of such membership. This would serve to give the Negro Leagues greater prestige, 
help stabilize their operations and protect the rights of their public and players. I also believe organized baseball could help in the establishment of additional leagues where the young Negro player can be developed. If and when the Negro leagues approve and other difficulties can be overcome, I personally favor the adoption of some plan under which a limited number of Negro players who first establish ability, character, and aptitude in their own leagues might advance to the majors or big minors of organized baseball. A system of selection might be worked out similar to the one by which a few players advance from the minors to the majors of organized baseball every year. I think some such plan as this would help instead of injure the Negro Leagues. It would encourage the young Negro player because it would give him a chance to reach the top. It would also give deserved recognition to the Negro fan who helps support baseball, both Negro and white. To this day, the letter that Larry McPhail wrote to New York City Mayor LaGuardia serves as one of the boldest examples of the two mindsets in baseball in 1945. One, the resistance of the old guard, the obstacle for the black ball player. The Yankees had no interest in signing anything but white players. And two, the push for change from the outside. Mayor LaGuardia asked this question. He wanted to know why black players were being excluded from the top leagues of baseball. He was applying the pressure. And the Yankees, they did everything they could in 1945 to say no. But change was coming. This is NBA broadcaster Jason Jackson. Join former NFL linebacker Kirk Morrison and myself each week on Forward Progress as we keep the conversation going for the pursuit of racial and social justice in America. In each episode, we are discussing how this quest for equality intersects with the world of sports and entertainment through our conversations with athletes, activists, civic leaders, and more. Listen to Forward Progress on the SiriusXM app, now home to the best collection of podcasts in one place, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcasts. Celebrate the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson's breaking of the color barrier in Major League Baseball by learning about how he got there at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. Located at the corner of 18th and Vine in Kansas City's historic Jazz District, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is the world's only museum dedicated to preserving and celebrating the rich history of African-American baseball and its impact on the social advancement of America. For more information, visit nlbm.com and follow Bob on Twitter at nlbmprez. And don't miss the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's traveling exhibit called Barrier Breakers, From Jackie to Pumpsy, at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles, available now through the All-Star Game. After Kennesaw Mountain Landis dies, Happy Chandler becomes the commissioner. And... Branch Rickey leaves St. Louis to go to Brooklyn because I can tell y'all now with no level of uncertainty, the move to go get Jackie Robinson would never have happened if he had been in St. Louis. St. Louis was too South. Yeah, it, it, it felt like South in the, in the heart of the Midwest. So it never would have happened in St. Louis. But Rickey's move to Brooklyn really started to set the stage. I guess you could say the stars were now really aligning for this opportunity 
to break Major League Baseball's color barrier. So when you look at Landis's death, and then as MacPhail thought that he had found the proper successor in Happy Chandler, because again, Happy Chandler was a white Southerner from Louisville, Kentucky. And Chandler was not what MacPhail thought he was going to be. I've always believed that Ricky and Chandler completely orchestrated the move to go get Jackie Robinson. So by the end of the 1945 season, Jackie Robinson had literally disappeared. His Monarch teammates had no idea where he was. Well, as we now know, he had been summoned to meet with Branch Ricky, where the two of them made the monumental decision with the blessing of Happy Chandler. Ricky and Chandler had a backroom handshake They got a deal in place because what Ricky did know was that the commissioner had the unilateral ability to overturn the owner's vote. The question is, would he exercise it? And and so I got to believe that Chandler said, if they vote against it, I will exercise my power. And that's when they make the move. Former commissioner, Happy Chandler. In January of 1947 at a meeting at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, a club owners meeting. They voted 15 to 1 not to let this boy play. And Ricky was then on the verge of bringing him in. So that was supposed to be advice to me and advice to Ricky. Ricky was in there with his partners, 15 of them, and they voted right in his face, 15 to 1, not to let this boy play. Well, I've told you the story before. I don't want to have to repeat it again or not, but Ricky yeah. came forthwith down here to the cabin on the back side of my place and said to me, uh, Commissioner, you know what's happened, and I know what's happened, and that's supposed to be advice to you and me. And uh, they're virtually saying to us they don't want him, and they're saying to me they don't want me to bring him in. You understand? And I can't do it without... I'm assured of your complete support. So we talked it out, and... I told you, I told him then, I'm going to have to meet my maker someday. And uh, if he asked me why I didn't let this boy play, and I'll say it was because he's black, that might not be a sufficient answer. And I'm wholly unwilling at this stage of my life to say to this fellow, you can't play, although you have the ability, you can't play in the major leagues uh, because you're black. I said, you bring him in and but we'll make a fight with you, and of course, the rest of it's history. And so Ricky, Chandler, they take this thing to vote. And of course, the owners voted against it. And Chandler overturns the vote. And that's how we get Jackie Robinson. Now, I can only imagine what Larry McPhail must have been feeling. Because, y'all, Larry McPhail and Branch Ricky could not stand each other, and they had been close at one time. And, and this is now, they were like, you talk about a feud. They were like the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, they were like the Kansas City Chiefs and then the Oakland Raiders. They hated each other. It was rivalry at its finest. Former Commissioner Happy Chandler on Larry McPhail. There were more uh, black fellows that were qualified than he knew about. Ricky knew about them, but he didn't know about them. 
Ricky knew about everything. <laughs> he pretty damn smart son when it came to baseball business. He made, he was a student. He finished the report with this statement that almost sounds like a threat in a way, a veil threat. See what you think of it. The individual action of any one club may exert tremendous pressure upon the whole structure of professional baseball and could conceivably result in the lessening the value of several major league franchises. That was a threat against Ricky. An obvious one. Yeah, sure. He didn't mind because he didn't like Ricky. They didn't like each other. Happy Chandler rules the way that he rules, and Branch Ricky one-ups him, and Jackie Robinson is signed to play in the Dodgers organization. Everything that not only MacPhail, but the other owners who had been in such staunch opposition for every excuse that they had come up with, Ricky, in his own way, some may say it was a diabolical way, had actually outsmarted the rest of those owners. And he had gotten his way. And Jackie Robinson would now move in to organize baseball. Happy Chandler, speaking to interviewer William Marshall in 1980. Let me just ask this question point blank. But I really need your opinion on it. Why? What is the basic reason that most of the owners really didn't want blacks to play? We've talked about these things that McPhail oh, raised. Uh, they were not genuine reasons. They were excuses. And uh, I say the one thing that caused reflection was that they, the Giants were at the polo grounds. That's in the heart of Harlem. And they said, frankly, that they would have a right and they would burn down the polo grounds. Of course, Harry Stone didn't want to turn down the polo ground. You can't blame him for that, you understand. But uh, their reasons were not uh, of sufficient moment. They were not well thought out. They were going against the grain. And the grain is that every fellow in this country making a difference what color he is, if he's got ability, he's entitled to a chance. They were going to deny him that. that, that you, I don't think you can justify that. I didn't think so then. I don't think so now. Now with Ricky and Chandler having made the bold move to break baseball's six-decade-long self-imposed color barrier, they had been successful in knocking down, I guess, again, the Berlin Wall uh, of baseball. Now the process becomes how do we now acclimate Jackie into this opportunity that had been brought forth. And while we were celebrating what Ricky and Chandler had accomplished, the road to integration was still going to be long, winding, and difficult. And Ricky knew that he had to come up with ways to insulate Jackie away from the immense racial hatred that he would ultimately be confronted with. And so he did things that were non-traditional as it related to the typical way that he had gone about doing his business with the Dodgers. He would take Jackie to Cuba for spring training, and he would intentionally assign him to Montreal, to the Montreal Royals. 
elevated him to AAA to his Montreal Royals club because he knew that Canada was so much more liberal than what we saw here in the States. And ultimately, Ricky, who had been so aggressive signing Black talent, would ultimately build Dodger Town there in Vero Beach, Florida, as primarily a safe haven for his African-American ballplayers. He could not risk them going out into the general public in Florida at any cost. Florida was as difficult a backdrop as there was anywhere in the country. It ain't the same Florida that we typically think of today because we think of Orlando and Miami and Tampa. Florida was the deep south, and you can believe that. And I've had guys like my dear friend Amos Otis, star for the Kansas City Royals, and the Royals were training in Florida in the 1970s that said there were still places where they would get pulled over because they were walking in areas that people felt like they had no business walking in. So that was Florida. And so Branch Rickey understood that he needed to shield Jackie as much as he possibly could from the level of hate and vitriol that was going to be so welcoming, I guess you could say, for Jackie wherever he went. And so Cuba for spring training, Montreal, where he was beloved by the Canadian fans. As a matter of fact, Jackie and his beautiful wife, Rachel, loved their time in Montreal because they were treated so kindly. And Jackie played tremendously well in Montreal. And so now the other owners, while they had been in alliance, and my guess again is that there were owners who stood in alliance with other owners, even though they didn't necessarily feel that way, but you just can't be the one that breaks away from the majority because now you're signal out. And, and so the other owners now started to look at an opportunity because there's no question when Jackie Robinson joins the Brooklyn Dodgers on April 5th, 1947, this had now opened the door for other black and brown talent to flow in. So who would be next? Well, obviously a guy like a Bill Veck. Bill Veck had always had a heart for black ball players. And whether it's true or not, Bill Veck, as we know, was indeed trying to buy the Philadelphia team and had threatened to fill it with black ball players if he was successful. And of course, Judge Kennesaw Landis, when he caught wind of that, quickly nixed that deal. And so Bill Veck would go and get Larry Doby after Jackie. Well, that's probably not as much of a stretch. But now the question is, how would the other owners start to view this integration process now that it was underway? And uh, of course, the St. Louis Browns would be next when they would go out and sign Hank Thompson away from the great Kansas City Monarch and subsequently Willett Brown. And then the Dodgers would come back and get Dan Bankhead. All of these guys go up in 1947, but still the other owners are still kind of sitting back. They're laid back and they're thinking this thing through in terms of when. When do we make the move to go get a black player? So again, we go back and look at 1947. It's three teams. The Dodgers, 
Cleveland Indians and St. Louis Browns that ultimately make the move to sign this black talent. And so the other owners were, I guess, collectively trying to gather themselves to figure out when that, again, timing was going to be right. This thing was always about the timing. You know, it was never the right time to bring a black player. Well, now was the time because black players were starting to move into Major League Baseball, and now the rest of the Major League owners had a major decision to make. So now that the Berlin Wall of baseball had been knocked down and black and brown talent was starting to flow into Major League Baseball, now what happens next to the Negro League? We'll explore that in a very in-depth way in future episodes of Black Diamond. Don't miss dropping Friday on your podcast feed, my sit-down with today's narrator, former New York Yankee, former New York Met, former All-Star, and current Players Alliance president, Curtis Granderson, as we talk about his reaction to the MacPhail Memorandum and the efforts to integrate Major League Baseball. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the Sirius XM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Donnie Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to Sirius XM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.